Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I hope I brought some justice to Mr. Kowaleski, who, you know, obviously has to live with the effects of this for the rest of his life. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? This is going to be this is going to be an interesting one, Steve, because we've ar- we've already had like at least three technology issues before we started recording. So. I know, I know. <laughs> but you know what I'm really proud of though is that I've got my green screen working, so we've actually got the Great Trials Podcast logo behind me. It, uh, it looks so, great. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, we got that going for us, even if nobody's going to be able to hear what we say. <laughs> We might sound terrible, but we look great. Just trust us. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, um, well, let me go ahead and introduce our guest today. We have a fantastic trial lawyer from uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, or, or Burnsville, Minnesota, uh, Paul, Paula Josart. Uh, Paula, how are you doing? Great. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Yeah. It sounds well, good so far. Sounds good so far. So. <laughs> Well, welcome to the show. Uh, I want to give everybody a little bit about your your background. So Paula is uh, a um, well, is the tri- the partner at the Josart Law Firm uh, that's based out of uh, Burnsville, uh, Minnesota, which is outside of Minneapolis. And uh, I'll get my pronunciation down. Uh, I promise. Um, Paula has uh, tried a number of cases, a number of multi-million dollar cases, and uh, just has a fantastic track record, especially when it comes to railroad law, uh, Federal Employees Liability Act, toxic exposure and and injury cases. Uh, She has been fighting for the underdog uh, ever since she first stood up to a bully in the high school bathroom. So we're going to have to hear more about uh, more about that than I saw. <laughs> but uh, but uh, she's been named as the outstanding trial lawyer by the Minnesota Association of Justice. She's been named as a uh, rising star by Minnesota Law and Poli- Politics. Uh, named as one of the top young lawyers in Minnesota, and has been named a super lawyer uh, multiple times. Uh, and in fact, in 2015, she had three verdicts that were in excess of a million dollars. And uh, she's originally from uh, from North Dakota and a graduate of the University of North Dakota. So, Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for having me. I was going to say the um, I I always tell this story about North Dakota that I had a trucking case um, where I had to go to North Dakota to take depositions of the truck driver, um, and it was like I can't remember if it was January or February. Um, but I had to fly into Minot, North Dakota, and then rent a car and drive an hour north of there to a, a very tiny town. And I can't even remember what the name of it was. But what I do remember is that the wind chill there was <laughs> negative 40 degrees. Hey, that's why I moved to the warmer cl- climate in Minneapolis. At least we're at like minus 30 in the winter, so right. it's a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. That's I practically summer. Right. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the thing I do remember is that uh, is that um, walking from the airport to get my <laughs> rental car, I could feel my eyelids start to freeze shut. And it is that is it really is true. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. So I I I know I lived there for many years. Um, but, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a great state. And I, and I, I will say that my, uh, my, the defense counsel, he had a breakdown on the way back and we were supposed to grab dinner that night and he had a breakdown in the middle of this, uh, snowstorm. Oh. I just told him, I told him I wasn't coming to get him. I, I, let him, I left him out there. It is a dangerous thing. It's, it's weird. Like we, we really did growing up there, pack our, you know, our 
good, safe belongings for survival. Because when you're stuck out there, there's nobody coming by besides, I mean, the tumbleweeds are frozen, so there's nothing to help you. Well, uh, well, Paula, let's uh, let's talk about this case. The name of the uh, case is Scott Kovaleski versus uh, BNSF Railway Company, which is Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Uh, the case was tried in February of 2018 in Hennepin County, uh, Minnesota. Uh, it was a Federal Employees Liability Act case, a, F- a FELA case. Um, and uh, before I get into the facts, I'll just say the, the verdict in the case was $15,343,753. And that doesn't even include the $4.6 million sanction award, which we're going to talk uh, a lot about because uh, the, the um, defense conduct in this case uh, basically sounded like they were trying to do everything they could from you learning even the most basic facts to help your client. Um, so, but let the, 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 the underlying facts of the case were that Mr. Kovaleski was a switchman for the uh, BNSF railway. Uh, and uh, while he was in one of the yards, railway yards there, um, uh, some uh, rail cars came in and he smelled a, uh, rotten egg smell that quickly turned into a pungent and sort of overwhelmingly sweet smell. Uh, And he immediately started uh, coughing, felt burning in his nose and lungs, uh, you know, got out of the area along with his coworker, uh, went into the uh, break room, I think, and and collapsed there. Uh, And then both he and his coworker were rushed to the hospital. And it was, no thanks to BNSF, it was determined uh, that he had been exposed to hydrocarbons, uh, which come from wellhead casing oil or casing head gasoline, which is used in fracking, uh, uh, fracking oil, and that was in the rail cars and had been leaking. But apparently, um, when he first had to go to the hospital, BNSF told the doctors that he had only been exposed to sulfur dioxide, which is not near as, uh, as toxic to, the, um, to somebody who's exposed to it. Uh, and what I should say is that this wellhead casing oil has things like benzene, uh, tuolene, and hydrogen sulfide in it, all very toxic, very harmful. And because of that, he suffered a uh, progressive neurological disorder, uh, which the symptoms sounded like they were similar to Parkinson's. Um, and also had reactive airways disease syndrome, uh, and it affected uh, basically every aspect of his life on just the ability to move around, to control his body. And I think I saw somewhere that you described um, him getting out of bed in the morning. He sort of had to rock his body back and forth and then lean, sort of fold himself against the wall just to get out of bed every morning. And uh, And I saw that you described him as a going from a 53-year-old man to an 88-year-old man, uh, essentially overnight. So, um, so that, that was the, that, that's the basic uh, facts of the case. And Paula, please correct me if I've, uh, if I've messed anything up there. No, the, the only thing I would say is you said he was rushed to the hospital. Um, and, and sadly, that should have been the case. Uh, but in this case, like everything else, uh, the BNSF was downplaying uh, the severity of the incident. And, and what, what was alarming is uh, they had Mr. Kowaleski and his coworker sitting in the break room. 
he he couldn't hold up his head and his head was on on the the break room table and a former police officer turned railroad uh, worker another BNSF worker came in and nobody was examining Mr. Kowaleski and this gentleman went over and checked on him and knew immediately how bad he was um, and he was the one who prompted the railroad to finally make the call uh, to get him by ambulance out of there. Um, so there was there was no uh, representative of the BNSF, like management representative, who was in a hurry to get Mr. Kowaleski uh, treated, which is which is sad because had he been perhaps properly, had they told him properly what was wrong with him, had they got him there immediately, the hyperbaric chamber could have perhaps helped with some of the brain damage that had occurred from this. But from start to finish. Um, as, as we've noted, and as, as it was our opinion and our position, this was a cover-up from start to finish, just start to finish. And just a, just a, just a tragedy, what happened to this man. It's exactly right. He is like an 80-year-old man. I stay in contact with him uh, to this day. Um, he's very difficult to hear anymore. His, his voice is going... Um, he had a fall a couple days ago, or a couple weeks ago, I suppose it is now, um, where there's nothing he can do. He can't get up. He can't move. He freezes. Um, there were times during this process where he would freeze for 48 hours um, at a time where people finally, he lived alone, where people would finally come back and, and find him. Um, so his life is is um, horrific, horrific. And, you know, uh, that's that's his reality today. And, and the BNSF did get sanctioned, but you know, I'm not really sure that matters much. Right. I mean, because they, they basically right from the beginning, as you say, ruined his life. I mean, not, not only did they not rush him to the hospital as you pointed him out, but when he did go to the hospital, told him that he would had been exposed to sulfur dioxide, which uh, I take it is, is much less toxic than, um, the hydrocarbons, the benzene and tuolene and, and, and hydrogen sulfide that he had, he had actually been exposed to and, and gave doctors the wrong information. Well, this is what's crazy. I mean, it really was like a Hollywood movie, right? So they, they claimed that this was sulfur dioxide and then we got their card, car readers. So there's, in all these rail yards, there's like an automatic car reader that would tell you what cars were coming and going from there. Um, we had evidence in this case and confirmed by management at the BNSF that the sulfur dioxide car that they claimed was on site that was a potential for this rotten egg smell wasn't even present at the site, despite the video that they produced kind of waving in and out, trying to show that the sulfur dioxide car was there. And so, yes, it, yes, indeed, they, they tried to blame a product that is not known to cause any of these symptoms. So quite honestly, you know, I got Mr. Kowaleski's case late in the almost up to the three year point, which is the statute of limitations. And up to the up to that point, the doctors really had no idea what they were dealing with because of the lack of of um, information that the railroad refused to provide to these medical providers. And we took the depositions and the medical providers were dumbfounded at, you know, 
hearing sulfur dioxide over and over, but once they heard about hydrocarbons and really what makes these things up, I mean, it sounds so nice, doesn't it? Hydrocarbons sound so clean and natural. And it ain't clean and natural, I'll tell you that. The stuff that's in this fracking uh, procedure is, is horrifically dangerous. And these products are well known to cause the neurological problems that Mr. Um, Kowaleski was left with. And what was interesting is through the process, we had to do the depositions of, of the railroad's experts. Um, we did a hearing actually, the railroad asked for a hearing and we certainly uh, engaged in that hearing. And they had to admit on the stand, these experts for the railroad that are well known in the oil and gas industry and the rail industry, they had to admit, yes, indeed, we preach about the neurological effects, just like Mr. Kowaleski is having. And yet they didn't want that to be known that these hydrocarbons you know, were being switched in a rail yard where they throw these cars basically off of a hill, they call it a hump, and they smash into each other and that's where the gas escaped. And there was, I don't remember the exact number, nine or 11 of them smashing into each other at the very time Mr. Kowaleski was hurt 36 feet away from him. And there was never a mention by these railroad officials that that's exactly what was crashing at the time of his injury. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just crazy that, and this is kind of a duh statement, but I have to say it anyway, it's kind of crazy that, you know, he, he smells something and basically I cannot imagine how terrifying that is to basically that quickly have your body start shutting down how how terrifying that must be and it's even crazier to me that that wasn't the most horrifying thing about this case kind of i mean it is but in terms of what happens afterwards with the cover up and 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 you know not getting him help and then giving the wrong information so that he doesn't get the appropriate help all the way forward to the discovery stuff that we'll talk about it's just it's crazy that 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 horrifying initial impact and exposure isn't the most horrifying thing about the case. Yeah, there's nothing to about that. I mean, that's exactly right. When you hear it all, you just think, I can't believe that this can happen in the world. I mean, anywhere, much less here in the United States. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and one thing I, I, I forgot to mention in the uh, in the run up of the facts is that um, that. It was these 11 cars that were, as you said, Paula, uh, uh, 36 feet from where he was. Uh, one of them had a had a leak, and that's what what caused this. And and of course, uh, the defendants deny that there was any any leak here. But I, I did see, and I was I made a note to ask you about this that that there was some allegation that they had actually mislabeled the chemicals as hydrocarbons just so that they could hump the cars at a faster speed. And that's, that's what you're talking about where they're, they're uh, moving these and, and, and crashing them into each other. And that's what causes the leak and causes these hydrocarbons to then be exposed to the workers. Yep. And if they, you know, when, when they're hitting, these cars are crashing into each other. They had, they, they called them retarders. We're supposed to slow these cars down. And, and they, they would increase the speeds because you'd want faster production, right? Well, humping these kinds of cars is, is just a disaster, obviously, waiting to happen because even the most 
kind of subtle bumping of these cars, this gas is so, so volatile. It's the, it's the lightest, most volatile gas you can have coming from an oil well. And when it, when it hits, it's, they have built-in um, escape valves, basically release valves that have to release these. And we found out that within a couple weeks of this incident, at least one car, if not two cars, that were hauling this stuff were destroyed because they were so faulty. But that took us over a year to find that out. And they they were having tons of problems with this particular product. Yeah, and and I saw that I I think you had evidence that one of the two cars that was destroyed um, actually did have a leak or had a problem with its safety valve, and then they went ahead and destroyed it anyways. And and destroyed it, yeah. And, you know, that was one of the big battles in this case is we – we wanted to inspect these cars. We wanted to see them. I mean, we knew what happened. I mean, we we had to, I mean, you know, I, I think I have a, a trench coat now and I'm Columbo <laughs> and so is my paralegal because we, we really had to investigate. We had no information and and we pieced together the, the, the video that they provided um, and we put together the timing and we looked up the product and we got the experts and and, you know, when you put it together, it was like everything kind of just kept it rolled. You know, we, we got one piece and then we got another and we got another and the smell and, and the whole bit. And it, it is just it, it is we, we wanted to see these cars and they went to the judge and said, yeah, we're trying to get the cars. You know, she ordered it and then they spread them to the to the ends of the earth. I mean, they had them in Mexico and Canada and they said, well, you can travel there and maybe see them. And then we found out that some of them were destroyed and, and everything was a game. And, you know, here I would be answering to Mr. Kowaleski that, well, we're trying to do this, but this, and we're trying to do that. And he's he's trying his best to understand and, and get through it. And it was it was just horrific. Yeah, well, and it's one of those situations. I mean, sometimes you have something like this that happens and some of the evidence is in the possession of the defendant and, and you're kind of dependent on them to get it. But some stuff is, um, you know, is out there that you've got, you've got surveillance video or you've got something else where you can at least get some of the evidence. But it sounds like in this situation, given where he was injured and I mean, and how he was exposed that you're dependent on them on their, you know, being, forthright, although they weren't, and you, you ended up figuring it out anyway, but you're dependent on them to get access to the information that you need to prove your case. While, while you know, cause they're going to, I mean, we'll talk about it, but they're going to have all these defenses that your theory of the case isn't right. And yet they have most of the evidence for you to be able to prove it. They, they really had everything in, in this case. And, and so everything was a battle. It was, you know, I, my, my, kitchen chairs had to be replaced because every weekend I spent writing a motion to compel. I really did. And it I mean, it was crazy. And I would say, you know, judge, I mean, the, the case started, the case started guys with them not providing me the video. And we knew that we needed this video. And so I went to the judge very early and I said, judge, I'm really, really concerned. They won't even give me the most basic video. And I said, this is what I'm concerned about. And I set forth what, what my concerns were. And it was like I had become a, a fortune teller. I mean, I should really get out on the circuit doing fortune telling because I would say during every motion to compel, 
judge, they're not going to produce those cars because, and I would tell her, and that's exactly what would happen. And judge, they're not telling us what this product is because, and it was one after another, after another uh, of these issues. And you're right. They had uh, every piece of material in their possession, but you know, it just took constant digging and putting the puzzle pieces together uh, that, that we were able to, to really reveal what was really going on that day. And it, you know, when, when, when you put it all together, it, it makes absolute sense, but it, it was, it was a battle from the minute we sent the letter to try to get the video um, until we finally collected the check for Mr. Kowalewski. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. It's astounding. You know, we, I think we've all been in our discovery battles and, and, you know, to the point where we felt like the defense had to be, uh, or the defendant had to be sanctioned. Uh, I've never uh, really, you know, reading through this order from the court where you, you, I mean, literally, even as you said, the most basic information, you know, just what, what was in the, the contents of the car, they, they weren't even producing that to you, um, you know, and so it just is sort of crazy. But, um, but I wanted to back up for a second because I wanted to make sure we explain to our listeners the type of case this is. This is a, a Federal Employees Liability Act case, so a FELA case. Um, and, you know, I, I, Yvonne, I can't remember. I don't think we've talked about another FILA case on the on the podcast. Um, so I just in, make sure our listeners understand. Um, Paula, do you want to just explain, you know, what a FILA case is and, and, and the differences it has between, say, a, a normal, uh, you know, tort negligence case? Sure. So the uh, FILA, the Federal Employers Liability Act, was a um, enacted by Congress in the late 1800s um, and, and kind of revised in the early 1900s. 
to protect injured railroad workers. So the railroads, which were very powerful and continue to this day to be very powerful, did not want to have a workers' comp system because they were literally killing thousands of workers every month in trying to lay this rail. And so they fought and were successful in not having workers' compensation. So in these cases, an employee has to bring basically a lawsuit. They have to bring a claim um, and they have to prove, unlike a work comp case, they have to prove that their railroad was negligent in causing their injury. So they have to go through a whole liability process and prove that the railroad did something wrong to cause their injury. It is not enough for any of them to claim that the injury happened while they were at work and so therefore they should be compensated. So it is it is set up to be David versus Goliath. Paula, it also seems like I've, I've only done a little bit of research into this area and it also seems like while it was, while they're supposed to, if you read it, have sort of a maybe like a relaxed causation standard the right. way a lot of these cases shake out it really ends up being just like any other sort of civil toxic exposure case a absolutely so the the causation standard is set forth by the fila and and um as looked at by the supreme court says that if the railroad is negligent if the railroad's negligence played any part no matter how small in bringing about the injury, they're liable. So it, it is really the most relaxed causation standard you can have, no matter how small. And that's literally in the jury instructions for these cases. But the railroad has built such a mountain that it's, you know, I, I sometimes want to say they've made this so difficult that it doesn't matter how small it is. It is so hard to prove because they have everything, right? And especially in this case, causation was going to be our big, big issue. And they were, you know, hiding the documents and not giving us the documents and doing things with the documents and the, and the truth that we were really con concerned about. But yes, it is, it is a statute that really was written to protect railroad workers. Um, and we do have e some easier standards. But, you know, when you're fighting the big guy, it's not so easy. Right. Yep. Yeah, and and I mean, like you know, if if uh, Mr. Kovaleski didn't have a lawyer who was willing to just really fight every step of the way and to write motions to compel every weekend, um, you know, they can get away with this. Um, they, they can get away. Yeah, I, I, you know, he he did. I mean, this is kind of interesting. He had a, another attorney to start with right after he was injured, um, and and that firm said that they were not gonna take his case and basically told him it was too difficult. Um, he had a second lawyer, uh, which was interesting. And that lawyer, uh, um, from the file that we received, what we could tell is the only thing that had been done is there was a sticky note put on the file and it said, do not put the railroad on notice. Um, and so, so we got the case I suppose, I don't know what, what for sure the month was, maybe three months before the statute was running. Uh, and, and we went to work and, and work we did. And, you know, it, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, if you're, you have to be, the gloves are on and you have to be ready for the fight because they will, it will be a battle. And, and you're exactly right. I, I unfortunately think that many times um, 
defendants get away with not providing the information because nobody wants to fight that hard. And, and you just have to be ready for the long haul and the long fight. And, and what makes it worth it is when I'm sitting at my desk, staring across and seeing Mr. Kowaleski and there's tears in his eyes and, and he can barely move and he has his cane and, and, you know, he's telling me how, and he really never complained. I mean, he always, he, he really didn't, but you just see what a tortured soul he was. And, you know, that, that stuff keeps me up at night and, and keeps my paralegal up at night. And that's why we fight. And that's what we had to do because we knew it was going to be a battle. Yeah. Well, it, that's one thing that I noted from the, uh, the order. And I do want to go through sort of the, all the different ways that they, they withheld discovery, destroyed discovery, uh, destroyed evidence, you know, tried to alter evidence. Um, but I, I assume you knew that this was going to be this type of fight because it looked like there that they had been sanctioned a number of times before in different cases. I think one, at least one in Minnesota and then maybe one in Montana, uh, and then maybe a couple of other states where they had basically done this similar type of conduct of uh, just stalling, delaying, and destroying uh, the whole time. Yep, you know, it, we, you know, people had written uh, some briefs before on on asking for sanctions against the BNSF for their tactics. I will say, I I think I had I I don't know the exact number three, maybe four prior. Um, in instructions to the jury about the BNSF destroying evidence prior to getting to trial. Um, and so, you know, this, this, we knew their history. Uh, and, and I was thankful that some of my other fellow railroad attorneys uh, shared some of their um, sanction orders. Spotted Horse was a Montana case. Uh, and then the, the Minnesota case was a, just a tragic um, uh, crossing case where four teenagers were killed. Mm -hmm. And in, in that case, it was revealed that, you know, evidence was altered. Um, and, and it took a lot for that judge to, to get to the point where, where she had sanctioned them. Um, it was, you know, less than what we got for a sanction, but nonetheless, a, a really big san sanction. Um, but, you know, I think we had established that they made uh, $3 million 3.57 million or 13.57 million in profits hauling oil uh, every year or every week. And so do sanctions do much? I, I don't know. Right, right. Paula, can you speak to just quickly? Um, I think it can be challenging for newer lawyers um, and just lawyers in general when you when you get in a case where you can see and, and it sounds like you had a heads up in this case, but where I think sometimes, especially newer lawyers, struggle with when to, go, when to go to the court with motions to compel, how to properly sort of make that record of when there's these discovery abuses where you, you want to educate the court and, and get the court where you think the court should be in terms of sanctions if they're warranted or just ordering production of things you're trying to get without... Um, I know I still worry about it sometimes seeing like I'm being like petty or, or a complainer or, or wasting the court's time. And obviously in this case, you weren't dealing with minor issues, but I'm just wondering if you can kind of speak to how you approach that since, since you did know this was going to be an issue and you were kind of laying the groundwork all along. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I, I struggle with that every day. Um, you know, I, I do a, a 
big part of my practice, obviously, is these railroad cases. And, and even in the PI cases, there, there are issues. And I would say, you know, your gut usually is telling you, hey, something is amiss here. Something's not right. And I think it really is our obligation to take it to the court. And you might have a judge who looks at you and says, you're wasting my time. I hate these discovery disputes. But you know what I really think? I think sometimes the, the defense bar puts that into our head, right? You're wasting time, da, 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 da. You know, when there's really things going on, and even if it seems kind of minor, my position is no matter what, a record has to be made of that. And if you don't make your record, you're going to perhaps regret that. And you might have a judge who calls you petty, and, and, and I have. Um, but in the end, I know who I represent, and I represent that injured person. And so um, not that I don't care, but I think it's my obligation to point out the deficiencies or the concerns. And there's been times where, you know, they can prove me wrong, maybe, or whatever, say, oh, this is how we did it, and, and, and whatever. but that's okay, and sometimes it's making mistakes, but I think to, to be able to put my head on the pillow at night uh, and, and be able to close my eyes and not be concerned I didn't good, do a good job, I would encourage every young lawyer, every old lawyer, I mean, quite honestly, it's some of the older ones that don't do it. They, they're used to the nice guy routine, and I would encourage them that they have an obligation to do this on behalf of their client because you know what is right and what is wrong and what should be there usually and what shouldn't be there and what could be missing and how you need to prove your case. And if you give up out of fear of being shunned or minimized, I mean, you just have to take it and that's the way it is. And yeah. so I, I, I do it and, and that's what I come to believe. I bring a lot of motions to compel um, and, and I think they're unfortunately unnecessary part of the evil but what needs to be pointed out is we should not have to bring a motion to compel right this information right. should be provided so you need to start with that premise and, and yeah. i think important what i what i tell young attorneys is you know we all get to know who the defendants are and who does what and what law firms do what and what they do and don't do and there you know use the in minnesota we have a rule 16 conference just like federal court use that as your roadmap, let the judges know early that you might be coming to them and that you're concerned that they will look unkindly on it because they shouldn't. It's their job and they shouldn't look unkindly that you're fighting for your client. You don't want to bring frivolous ones, but you know, I, I think you, you get a gut feeling uh, of what's right and what's wrong. And that's how I approach that. Yeah. Well, and I agree. I mean, it, it is so important to uh, to to make a record of it, to bring it to the court and to let the, the, the court really see what's going on. Because, I mean, you know, if you don't go to them, then they assume these cases are being, you know, moved along, uh, you know, nicely. They'll be ready for trial. Um, and, and then, you know, if you wait too long or, or uh, don't show the judge often enough, you know, what's going on in discovery, then then they do start looking at you as the person, why are you, you know, making a big issue over this one little thing uh, when really it's been something that's happening all along. Uh, and, and with discovery, uh, it, it, it's hard. It's, it's hard for young lawyers. It's hard for older lawyers to, to, you know, constantly be bringing up 
where there's deficiencies in discovery and where, uh, you know, people aren't doing what they're supposed to. But, um, you know, if you really do want to serve your client, um, you got to do it. Got to do it. Yep. Sunday afternoons on the dining room table. <laughs> That's right. Right. Just ruining chairs and drafting motions chairs. to compel. <laughs> 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 well, let's talk about this uh, specific uh, um, order, and uh, I'm trying to figure out the best way to start on it because, I mean, it, you know, we've already said that, that they didn't produce a, a, a number of basic documents, like, for instance, um, you know, telling you what the contents were on the cars, telling you what the uh, material safety data sheets were on the, the toxins on there. Uh, you know, weren't even able to give you that, wouldn't let you uh, inspect these 11 rail cars, even after they had been ordered uh, by the court to, um, uh, to let you inspect those 11 rail cars, as you said, two of which had been destroyed, the other nine just sort of got spread out and disappeared. And, and I did notice that the judge made note that there was one lawyer who, who was representing the defendant's you know, basically saying, okay, I'm trying to get these rail cars set up for um, inspection. And then that lawyer just all of a sudden disappeared. And a new lawyer came on and said, no, we're not, we're not producing the 11 cars um, or the nine cars or whatever, or whatever was left. Um, and, and then, the, you know, on top of that, um, you know, you know, uh, not giving you videos, not giving you audio information, um, not producing like there's their sort of basic uh, manual on how to handle evidence like this, where they had specific requirements on how they were supposed to be handling this. And, um, and so it's just a, it's just a laundry list of, of things that they weren't producing to you, things that they weren't um, uh, uh, giving to you. And, um, and so the court, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and just let everybody know the court struck their liability and causation defenses and then awarded uh, attorney's fees and costs. And the, the trial uh, was solely on damages. Uh, so that's a fantastic, uh, uh, a fantastic result. And then a, a later hearing, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. There was a later hearing, I think, to determine how much needed to be awarded to uh, deter them from doing this in the future. And, and I think that's where the award of uh, 4.6 million came from. But how, how did the court come to uh, an, an award of 4.6 million for, you know, all of the, these discovery abuses? You know, it was interesting. Um, I, you know, I don't really know exactly how the judge came to her numbers, um, but she looked at it, at, you know, looked at the award that Mr. Kowaleski ended up getting from the jury and kind of took it back from there and looked at what he lost for, for the three years, four years that we sat there and fought this out. Um, and and almost five, you know, it was almost five years from the time of his injury until he got his money. Um, and that's where she kind of came up with the numbers. And so she sanctioned him a certain amount, plus she awarded attorney's fees in excess of a million dollars for that. Um, and so, you know, in the end, it was about a $24 million judgment um, and, and with, with interest and such. And so th those were kinds of, you know, some of the things. But like you said, I mean, there was literally a laundry list of things that they did, things that you can't make up. You know, you noted uh, the attorney's departure, two attorneys departed the case um, before the trial uh, from the same law firm. Um, 
one I think the judge even notes in her her uh, order was basically abolished to the back of the room the last time he had showed up for the hearing. Um, and that was really something. And all of a sudden he was gone. And then uh, one of the, uh, there was a female attorney and by Thanksgiving, she was gone. And then the owner of the firm uh, took, took over and um, you're exactly right. He was not gonna allow the, us to view the cars and, and things of that nature. And, and uh, I mean, it, it just continued to be interesting. I mean, they had a witness, right? A witness, the, the man who was operating the hump tower. So he was the guy who was dictating the speeds that these cars would be going over the hill. And we had evidence that all their speeds were over the four miles per hour that they were supposed to connect at. Um, and we kept asking, who's the hump tower operator? Oh, golly gee, we don't know. We're looking into that. And we're like, well, there's only three hump tower operators. So give us the three, you know, they wouldn't give it to us. They gave us another name. We take his deposition. He had nothing to do with anything. And, and they knew that. And we finally take the deposition of this hump tower operator who interestingly was also represented by the second attorney who had this case, who had Mr. Kowaleski's claim. And when we took his deposition, it was revealed that just before they revealed his name to us, literally after near the end of discovery, like the last couple of days of discovery, he had settled a case with the BNSF where he had missed a half a day of work and he had to tell us what the amount was. The judge ordered him to tell us what the amount he got for a half day missed work. And it was $160,000. What? Yep. And so, I mean, that was, it, that was a really interesting development. He was a hump tower operator. They would not, they did not give us his name till the end. Um, he was very, uh, uh, in my opinion, very hostile. And he would not tell us at the time of his deposition what he settled his half day for, but the judge ordered it in the end. And, and it was revealed he somehow received $180,000 for his half day missed work. So, um, so it was interesting, right? Another twist and, and turn to it. It's, it's like the movie Michael Clayton, but like right. way, way, way worse. Well, I, <laughs> it was, I was just thinking, I mean, who knew hump tower operators made so much? I mean, that's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that was a, it was, that was an interesting exchange, I will say. Yeah. I mean, that, that is crazy. And, and so they, they had paid him that much money before they even disclosed him to you. So he, um, basically he had 180,000 reasons to be hostile to you. I didn't say that, but you know, the, the judge was interested in the amount that he got paid and that was ordered to be released. Um, and so it was, um, it, it, it was just hard. I mean, they should have just simply given us his name. He obviously had relevant information and, and, you know, done it that way, but that's not the way that it unfortunately was handled. Well, and sending you to that, the first one that you talked to who ends up not having any relevant information, which they have to know. I mean, he works for their clients. So the lawyer has to know that before you just show up to the deposition and it, uh, what's their explanation for that? They, they just were mistaken. Um, so yeah, this guy was never a hump tower operator. He was a, I think he was a yard master or something. I, I don't remember what his position was, but he was certainly never a hump tower operator. I, that is 
wild. My mind is so blown. I thought I had been involved in some discovery shenanigans before, but this is like yeah, it was, and it was it was piece after piece. You know, we had the video, um, and and you know we got this video late, and they clearly one day we were at court and we could see that our video was different than the railroad's video. Um, and the judge was the one looking at it and, you know, she ordered that the video be disclosed in a different format. But what was interesting is, you know, they have every, everything is, is under cameras in these yards. And um, they didn't have the video of Mr. Kovaleski in the break room, which there, uh, a number of witnesses had testified that there were cameras in the break room. They didn't have that. They didn't have cameras of Mr. Kovaleski being hauled into the ambulance where basically, and it was even management. I mean, I was, I, I, I was surprised management was very honest about the fact that Mr. Mr. Kowaleski was very, the man that arrived to work was very different than the man that left in an ambulance. I mean, you could see the effects of it already. Um, and they didn't have that video, but I did get some really useful video inside the BNSF car shop, which had nothing to do with anything. And it was, you know, 12 hours long or something ridiculous like that. I, however long it was, I don't know, but you know, that was the kind of stuff they produced all this video that was irrelevant, um, but not produce the video that we know should have been there. And they never really had an excuse for why, you know, they claimed that there wasn't a camera in the break room, but their own management members said that there was, um, they never really gave us a reason why they didn't have the ambulance video. Um, so it was, it was interesting. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. 
And I was thinking, and the judge pointed this out, and you obviously uh, made this point in, in depositions that, you know, they couldn't even recreate for you, uh, you know, like the MSDS or or the, I think it was the waybills, just to, just to let you know what was on those cars where, you know, I mean, th that's their whole business, first of all, that they have to know what's on those cars. But then second of all, if, if something, if there is an emergency, if there's a, you know, a derailment or something, they've got to be able to let, um, you know, local authorities know what they've just potentially exposed the population to. So they absolutely know what's on those cars. And they, they weren't even able to tell you uh, that basic information, which had to just be shocking to the judge, I got to imagine. Shocking, absolutely. And, and, and what we had are, you know, they wouldn't give us the waybill, right? And, and that's exactly right. It lists everything that's on that train, everything that's in the yard, whatever it is. And they wouldn't give us the waybill. And then they gave us a waybill. And then pretty soon we noted errors in there. So we got a reconstituted waybill. And this wasn't a word I made up. This was the word that their attorney chose to put in the pleading. We have a reconstituted waybill four years after this incident. How can a waybill be reconstituted? But it didn't end there. It didn't end there. We got a third reconstituted, reconstituted waybill. And so, it, I mean, it, it was just, it was bizarre. And, you know, we, we ended up taking very late in the game, the deposition of, well, I'm not sure what he was. I think he was an accountant, but he was the person that they put forth as the person with no most knowledge about this product um, from this company that it was shipped from. And, you know, he had no knowledge. He says he's always provided waybills. That's how they pay all that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, when we got to the third reconstituted waybill, I mean, he kind of threw up his hands and didn't even know what to say after that because he had never heard of such a thing. Right. I, how waybills can be the waybill signifies what 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 the car is, what's in it, what the product is, all the very important information that everybody needs to know. And I mean, they just they just couldn't believe it. But that was their word that they chose to use was a reconstituted waybill. Paula, just thinking about all the different sort of regulations that they would have to follow. I, you know, I'm thinking about some cases like, you know, we had a case where somebody who was working in the mining industry. Um, died at the job site. And so the Mining Safety and Health Administration was there fairly shortly thereafter and sort of sampled like the air content of the cars and, and things like that, evidence that might have been lost otherwise. Was there, I don't even know if I want to know the answer to this question, but was there any like, you know, sort of, I would think there'd be some kind of, if it's the FRA or some sort of federal investigation that would, that would um, have preserved some of this for you. So this is what's interesting. So, I, you know, the FRA, uh, it is a Federal Railroad Administration. Um, they didn't have an investigator in Minneapolis, but one of the most telling uh, emails that we got in the whole case was from an individual from the FRA who basically, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't remember the exact words, but he had inquired with the railroad through email and said, hey, I hear there was an exposure. What's the status? And the railroad manager emailed back and said, false alarm, sulfur dioxide, no big deal. And, and he really did write the word. I can, I can tell you false alarm was in the email. The FRA inspector the very next morning wrote in capital letters, false alarm, 
and then to paraphrase again said, what do you mean false alarm? There are two guys who were taken to the hospital. Uh, you need to tell us what exactly is going on and investigate this. So, you know, at, we, at least we had that, but there was nobody there to secure the scene. Um, the railroad kind of is in charge of its own investigation. So um, the chicken coop. And so yeah. um, that, you know, I was, I, was, I was glad that the FRA had at least deeply inquired, um, but they don't have many investigators. And so it was kind of left up to them. Um, the fire department, the local fire department came but you know they they wouldn't talk to us really and uh and, and they don't know right they have to go based on the information that the railroad's given them so it's it's a tough spot it's a it's a tough yeah. situation wow yeah that's the one thing you know from the doing some of these railroad cases and we don't do them at the level you do but it that you know has always gotten me is how they they can the railroads control the investigation. They control the story that gets told about it, you know, immediately. And, you know, and, and it, if it's a, at, if it's high profile at all, then they're immediately contacting the local media to tell their side of the story and get the word out um, about, you know, what they say happened and uh, just to sort of skew, skew the, uh, you know, public opinion in the jury pool. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 and that's that's the hard part, right? They have control of all, all the evidence. They have control of the narrative. So, you know, we're really uh, paddling up up the creek when we start these these cases, and, and they're a lot of work. One, one thing I, I noticed in their sort of claim defense of why they had all these discovery problems was that they, they say that the first notice that they got that there was some claim about these 11 – um, cars, uh, uh, you know, being the being the at fault cars, because they had sort of assumed it was these other two cars that didn't show up until like five hours after he had been injured. Yeah. Um, but um, they they said that they didn't get notice of that until three and a half years later. And um, t- talk about that, you know, them their point on that, and and how you uh, how you went about showing that made no sense. Well, it made no sense because the video told the story. I mean, you could tell exactly what was being humped and when in that video and the proximity to Mr. Kowaleski. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to say that in the video, you could see Mr. Kowaleski get exposed, but you could see the crashing. I mean, it was such a far distance from the camera that we were provided anyway, and that it was hard, but they knew exactly what was being moved. I mean, they had notice immediately as soon as the hump uh, let those cars go, they knew it was in the vicinity. And so, you know, they might have said, yeah, the first we knew about it was when you when you brought this claim. But, you know, they're in charge of the investigation. And you could see in the video um, the, the person who was down there looking at things, who was kind of a Carmen um, supervisor type guy. He was in the direction of those cars. And, and the only car he climbed upon, I believe, was the hydrocarbon car, one of the hydrocarbon cars. Um, but there was no report from him uh, on that particular issue. We could just kind of tell that in the video. So, yeah, you know, they, they have to say what they have to say, but that's that's the position that they held. Oh, golly gee, we had no idea. That's why we didn't retain any of the evidence. We just let those cars go free. Um, and, you know, so that was one of their strong points, I thought. Uh, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? What's going on in your yard at the time, and and we we established with their hazmat people 
that they have to, I mean, they basically said, we have to look to the ends of the earth to see what potential products are in that yard. And yet there's no record on the very thing that's moving 36 feet and crashing 36 feet from Mr. Kowaleski. It doesn't sound like a very credible investigation to me. Uh, one, one question I had is uh, Mr. Kowaleski was with a coworker and I think his coworker also went to the hospital. What was the, was he injured as well or was he not as badly injured? Well, you ready for this one? So, <laughs> so he was, uh, he was working with a gentleman who was fairly new to the railroad. Um, and this gentleman uh, was married and had three children and that becomes relevant here in a minute. Um, that gentleman felt uh, very sick also from this, um, but he was an Iraqi war veteran. And um, when he went home, his wife was a nurse and he told her how bad he felt. And he had significant, significant PTSD, underlying PTSD. And, you know, we, we couldn't find him for a long time. We were searching for him. We asked for his medical records. Nobody would give them to us. And his wife basically brought in his, well, what, what happened is he was, he was feeling terrible. And he went back to work for a couple of weeks and then just quit all of a sudden. And his wife couldn't figure it out. And she's like, what's going on with you? And he said, I just don't want to work there anymore. And, you know, this is coming from her. And she could, he would complain of these excruciating headaches and this, this sensation that he had and that, you know, she, she didn't know this, but she went and got his medical records for us. And it was revealed in there that he was having all the similar neurological symptoms. He was peeing his pants, doing all these things, and he was hiding all this. And this is where it really gets tragic. So he's having all these flashbacks, he's having all these neurological symptoms and he's telling his doctor, but he has, he thinks, is this from Iraq? What's happening? And at that point, they were still telling him sulfur dioxide. So he had no idea to put this together. Um, and one of the things was, you know, our, our expert was telling us, you know, asked me what had happened to him. And when I told him, he said, it is well known that some of those substances that are in something like the hydrocarbons will cause um, very horrific kind of reactions, uh, the brain reactions. And, and he ended up in front of his three small children and his wife committing suicide and blowing his head off in their kitchen. Oh my God. And Mr. Kowaleski, that haunted him. That haunted him because he felt like if, 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 if Michael could have just got help like he did, and figured this out, he would still be alive to care for his children. And, you know, there was pretty strong medical literature indicating that suicidal ideations happen with when you're exposed to these types of chemicals because it does mess with the brain so much. So it was really horrific uh, what, what happened to him. And, and that really, that, that bought, I mean, to this day, Scott Kowaleski talks about that. And, and that is the one thing that makes him very, tearful is thinking about Michael because he just feels like he didn't get the necessary help. Oh, that's awful. Oh, so tragic. So, so until, you know, obviously, you know, eventually all these discovery abuses lead to, you know, them not really being able to pursue their defenses, but, you know, earlier in the litigation or before you get that sanctions order, what was the railway's explanation for these significant, symptoms that your client had? 
Um, one of the defenses, the, the gentleman that received a settlement um, said that Scott Kowaleski had these signs and symptoms prior to this exposure, which was not true. He was a pilot. He had um, examinations every year. He was in perfect perfect health prior. Um, so they tried to bring that in through him, but then every other railroad manager said, no, that's not true. He was completely, I mean, we could see the change on him um, that day as he was laying on the break table. Um, so that was one of their things. And, and, and their defense that they always use in these toxic cases is uh, there, there wasn't enough of the chemical to cause the type of injury. And because you can't prove dose, like yeah. Yeah. And we went. Right. Right. Well, and that's that was the research I was doing. It was related to it was kind of, in my opinion, sort of um, kind of being backdoored in through a Dalbert motion. But that was my research was into this sort of dose. Dose response. In, yep. in field of cases that seems to just completely vitiate the whole purpose of <laughs> relaxed causation. Right. So they, they really do bring that argument, but there's some pretty strong case law out there that says that a dose response is not necessary. If you have signs and symptoms of, of possible exposure, um, that that is enough to get by the standard. Um, but that's where the, it, the problem always lies in these types of cases, you know, is, is trying to, you know, at least give some sense of dose. And, you know, these things were loaded with I don't remember the number off the top of my head, maybe 263,000 or something like that, gallons of this stuff, each car. Um, so it was a massive amount. And, you know, they tried to use that, oh gosh, you're outside and it's cold and it's nice and there's a nice pretty breeze blowing and all those types of things. But, you know, um, I, I think it would have, and, and that's really what they they did in their, in their uh, Fry-Mac hearing with their experts is to try to say that. But, you know, um, where a lot of these cases happen are the oil fields where guys die and you're out in the open out there, you know, sitting on a on a on a rig. Um, but yet it's still enough that it kills you. So, uh, you know, they weren't going to get very far, especially with the literature uh, that their own experts were teaching, really. Um, it does not take much of this stuff to to kill you. Uh, and much less cause neurological harm. So, you know, thankfully we were uh, okay with, with, with that regard. We, we thought the case law was pretty strong for us anyway, but you never know. I mean, I've, I've had to go both ways. And so um, we were okay on that, but that was probably their strongest defense. Well, um, as we've discussed, the because of all this, these discovery shenanigans, um, the judge uh, struck their liability and causation defenses. And so you had a trial that was just on damages only. So I just want to talk to you briefly about, um, you know, the trial and how you went about uh, presenting the damages and presenting, um, you know, what uh, Mr. Kovaleski was really going through so that they could give him the, uh, uh, you know, full amount of justice. Yeah, well, you know, right. It, it starts with the client. And um, Mr. Kovaleski is a wonderful, wonderful human being. Wouldn't hurt a fly, really. I mean, just a, a wonderful guy. Um, and we started with him. I mean, the, the proof was right there as he, you know, slowly walked up with his cane to take the stand and, and talk about things and his speech is halted. Uh, so he obviously played a really, really big part in establishing 
you know, the extent of his damages and what his life was going to become. Um, we also, I, I think probably our, our strongest witness was our life care planner um, who had spent, you know, a, a couple days with him at his home um, and made observations uh, about, about what Scott's life is going to be and is right now. Um, and it was, th those were the elements of, you know, he literally had to rock himself out of bed. Um, you know, he, I mean, this is a weird thing, but his dental care uh, was going to hell because to hold the fine motor skill of brushing his teeth is difficult. He can't really do it anymore. Um, and so, you know, it was those little things. It was, you know, he, he, he chokes easily. His, his reflex of, of swallowing and stuff is, is diminishing greatly. So friends and family would make him soups to put in the freezer because he lived alone and, and they would store it there so that he could just have soup uh, because he choked so easily. So that was what, what his life had become. And, and already at that point, he was having the episodes where he freezes up and he, there's nothing he can't move. And, you know, he's so determined to try to live some sort of life. Um, but he has no life. I mean, he, you know, he, he can barely walk. Um, his speech is horrific now. Um, really soft, you know, just like, like a, like a person at the very end stages of Louis body dementia or, or whatever. Um, and, and that has happened already. And, you know, it's only been uh, five, six years since, since the incident. And he's, you know, he'll be, in a wheelchair, he should be in a wheelchair now, but he's really trying to fight through it um, and trying to get the necessary help. But it's it's a horrific, horrific life. And, and he knows it. I mean, his, his brain is there as far as um, cognitive abilities, pretty good. I, I could see it, some slippage here in the last couple of months, but he understands and fully is aware of what is about to come. When you when he freezes up, and I know you gave an example of like forty eight hours where nobody uh, you know was able to get to him. I mean, how what does he have to do in that situation? Just basically wait until somebody finds him. Wait till somebody finds him. So he needs to have, you know, and it's it's hard. I mean, he he couldn't even really find um, a person to come mow his lawn, although he has. But it's hard to find those home care attendants. Uh, to come and be with you. And so he has people that are coming in to, to help him, but they can't, nobody's there yet 24 seven. And he is, um, he's a hundred percent needs it, but it's, it's hard to find help. And especially during COVID, it is really hard to find any kind of help. So he's struggling. He, he moved to Nebraska um, and, you know, he's a bachelor. And so it, it is a, it is a really sad life and he's just doing his best to try to help those that he can help. And, um, you know, he, he, he's doing the best he can. Um, I read in the, you know, uh, reading about the case that, uh, BNSF, uh, claimed it was going to, uh, appeal, uh, the verdict and, and the, the order. I was wondering if that is, uh, if that's played out or are you still in that or, or, well, they, they did. They appealed uh, to the Minnesota Court of Appeals, who uh, affirmed, um, and they tried to go to the Minnesota Supreme Court, which wouldn't hear that portion. 
Um, so we were successful with all the appeals. And then we had kind of a connected appeal in, in, in this case as well. We, um, we had, I had a successful trial in 2015, um, which the judge, trial judge took away. And one of the issues was she had determined that the federal interest rate should apply not the state interest rate, and it's a big difference. It's like a 1% federal, 10% Minnesota, big difference. And so that issue was also tied up in Kowaleski, and that had to go up to the Supreme Court, which they ruled in our favor and said it's 10%. So everything was all finished, um, and and the judgment was recovered last August. Fantastic. So I I have to admit, a 10% interest rate on a judgment, is uh, that's pretty nice. It is really nice. And thankfully, our Minnesota Supreme Court got that right. Um, with that interest rate, there was a early 1916 Supreme Court case really on, on topic on it, um, on point on it, I should say. Uh, but they, got, they eventually got it right. And that was a nice addition to this judgment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, uh, Paula, this has just been a great conversation. I wanted to make sure, is there um, anything that uh, we haven't told the our listeners about the uh, Kovaleski versus BNSF railway case um, that you wanted to make sure they knew about? No, I think I think we've covered everything. Um, you know, it was a it was a, a battle from start to finish, and you know, thankfully, in, in this one, David won, and um, and you know, I I hope I brought some justice to Mr. Kovaleski, who you know obviously has to live with the effects of this for the rest of his life. Yeah, well, it's it, I mean not only uh, you know fantastic work in the in the judgment but i mean really just the tenacity it's sticking with uh the discovery battles i mean it it is uh, um harder to do than it's than it sounds i mean it's uh, to really just constantly keep going in front of the court is uh fantastic work and um and i think i mean I, i'm not sure i've heard of a bigger sanctions order than this uh i mean this is uh, fantastic work yeah there aren't many so um you know that's so yeah we were very we were very pleased with it but you know when you saw one thing after another after another happening i don't think there was any way not to uh try to deter their behavior at ever doing that again to somebody else yeah and you you hope they learn but i mean you know as you said they had already had a a previous four million dollar sanctions order i think back in 2009 or something like that is that right exactly right yep yep so you hope that it deters them eventually, but we'll we'll see. The battle, the battle continues. Right. If not, at least you've made a record for the next case to just add it to the long. List. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> add it to the string. Right. Well, I, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking with uh, Paula Josart uh, in the case that we've been talking about is Kovaleski versus BNSF Railway uh, Company that was tried in February of 2018 in Hennepin County, Minnesota. The trial verdict was $15,343,753. And then the sanction order on top of that was another $4,600,000. And then uh, the nice uh, 10% uh, post-judgment interest rate, which is uh, 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 very good. Um, And so we've been talking to Paula Josart, and um, she's from the Josart Law Office in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you can look her up at josartlaw.com. That's J. O-S-S-A-R-T-L-A-W dot com. Paula, thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a great day.
Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.